Some episodes ago, we discussed the visceral reaction educators have to the word data, since we are tasked with collecting and providing data constantly. In this episode, we will explore the stories we often create when we discuss data and provide tips for transforming it from the villain in our systems to a trusted guide for the protagonist, or dare we say it, something worthy of true love. Welcome to the Grounded Learners Guild, the podcast that gets real about education, authentic leadership, and the transcendent power of being a part of a highly functioning team. Here are your hosts, Casey Veach, Emily Coakland, and me, Jenny Labrie. For thousands of years, stories have been used to capture and communicate our experiences as people. Stories increase our emotional investment in a particular topic, and really the more emotional investment we have, the more likely we're able to suspend disbelief, logic, objectivity, and observation. Now, usually when we discuss data, we need those we're working with to be logical, observant, and objective. However, because of the connotation data has for many of us, we have to intentionally integrate data with other communication practices in order to build trust, motivate, and inspire those we serve. Today's grounding intention is to evaluate the stories that we tell with our data and reflect on whether that is the story that we need to tell to transform the way individuals, teams, and leaders in our organizations use data. So truth time here. I was super excited that we connected data and storytelling together. Former English teacher nerd here. One of my intro lessons that I would always do with my students would be exploring eight different reasons why we read literature. And never really in that introductory lesson did I ever talk to the kids about the science of storytelling. Have either of you learned or done any research on the science of storytelling or the brain science behind storytelling? Not so much the brain science of it, but I actually did take a college course that was on the social implications and the social traditions of storytelling in society. Well, it's a huge rabbit hole that I just am increasingly more and more interested in the more I learn about the connection between the way your brain works and the act of storytelling. Like stories, actually listening to stories creates a physiological response within us. So we've got those three key hormones that are released into your body when your brain is currently hearing something or listening to something. And these you've all heard of before, I'm sure, but dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphins. So if you're wanting to get people to think about or increase their focus, motivation, and memory, you're going to want to up dopamine. And there's different stories that you can tell people in order to get your body to increase dopamine. In terms of oxytocin, that's the hormone in your body that creates emotions of bonding, trust, and generosity. There's stories you can tell people in order to get more oxytocin in their system. And then endorphins are really those feelings within us that make us feel more creative, focused, and relaxed. Super, super interesting stuff. And then for those who are familiar with cortisol and adrenaline, and you've studied those different hormones, those are our reactions to stressful situations and actually create oppositional feelings in those that we tell people with. So understanding the science 
and the physiological response that your body has when you listen to stories can be really powerful. And I've always felt that I haven't thought of how the science works within this. So this is really fascinating to me. And I feel like I'm learning as we're even just talking about this today. But I have always felt that there is a power in a story. And it's worth the time spent. So what does that mean for and why are we connecting this to data, I guess? I'm going to quote Emily here. And I think this involves some of the learning that we've done in the past, where data can be used within a system to tell the system's story. And it's an opportunity for us to really take hold of a narrative by determining what is the story we want to tell. And number one, what data do we need in order to tell that story? But pairing it with those responses, those characteristics, what do we need from people in order to produce something with that data? And even kind of tying some threads together with consideration to the college course that I had mentioned too, there's this idea, not just the brain science of one individual, but how the stories we tell and in turn how we use our data to tell our stories could be a thing that creates cultural ties or values of an entire system that can be brought forward depending on, like you said earlier, if it's the kind of story that's giving people the good vibes or the bad vibes. That's my brain science take on it anyways. <laughs> well, and I think at the end of the day, if you think about the structure of a story, the main idea of a story is the theme. It's the moral or the message. When it comes to talking about data, what are some different themes that you two have had kind of experience with or seen when it comes to data being a necessary part of a story? I would really say one of the things that I see a lot of, it's something you mentioned back in the Dirty Words episode when we talked about data. And yes, we are fully aware that we talked about it in the Dirty Words episode. But it's that idea of a lot of data being collected and kind of taken in, but not in the most efficient way where everyone is aware of where that data is going and what that data is being used for or there's just a bevy of actual numerical statistical data being taken, but nobody's exactly sure exactly to what end or sees the ultimate end of the story. Another theme that we see from the use of data is proof of the effectiveness of why we're doing what we're doing. So if we're using data, it is sometimes a way to say I'm being effective or this initiative is being effective or the work that we're doing with students has an impact and it is effective. And I know we're getting to where many districts are looking at preparing for the end of the fiscal year. And when we're looking at data at this particular moment in time, we may be looking at adequacy. Are we providing enough resources, enough FTE, enough of something in order to do the best job that we can. So adequacy is another theme that we often use in story when we're talking about data and efficiency. Are we spending, are we using our resources in the best way possible? Now, for the most part, when you're talking about those three themes of efficiency, adequacy, and effectiveness, those are more quantitative measures. We haven't really talked about qualitative data yet. 
You know what? I think it's so fascinating that we're talking about storytelling because I feel like qualitative data really is a person's story. So every time we collect data from various stakeholders as a system, there usually is or often is, especially now in the pandemic, going to be an area where people can kind of free respond. That's people telling their stories. And I think that there can be a lot of weight and gravitas placed on individual stories right now. And in many ways, there should be. But I also think there is sometimes a tendency of folks, depending on their feelings about data and where they fall in the system, to sometimes pit qualitative and quantitative data against each other. I think that's interesting that you mentioned that because it's hard to argue with numbers. But as soon Mm -hmm. as you get that qualitative spin on it, you might find more people doubting what you either have to say or what is being demonstrated through that story. And so I personally tend to lean more towards preferring the qualitative over the quantitative. And that goes back to that idea of our topic for the day of being a twisted love story is how do you come to terms with like, some people really like data, some people really don't like data. And if you don't like data, maybe you're saying you're kind of like me, you prefer that qualitative spin, but it's hard to find that in data, but it's not impossible. And so it's been a journey learning how to see data and use data with storytelling. That's definitely been a journey of ours that we've come to appreciate data a lot more when we learned how to put the story with it. To make it into a love story. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And with that being said, perfect segue. In our previous episode, Dirty Words, where we talked about data being that loaded term, we're going to make a metaphoric connection here. So there are multiple different types of story genres. In any educational system, you're going to do a genre study. We're going to connect now some stories or experiences with data with some of those genres. So the first one will probably be familiar to anybody who has a negative connotation of data. So, and that is data as a Greek tragedy. (laughs) I love this so much. This is great. (laughs) Well, because this is, I feel like I used to have more of that visceral reaction to the word data. And I don't know how you guys feel or where you are, who was the first one to come. Actually, I know of the three of us who was the first one to love data. Who am I kidding? It was Casey. Casey loves it. Casey's always loved data. And it was like she had to, you know, she had to convince us to get on board with it. (laughs) And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But that's why I love this Greek tragedy. Because sometimes (laughs) there's that part of you where you're just like, no, you just fight it. (laughs) You fight the data. And why is that? Yeah, and I, I don't want to make this all about me and my lit nerdiness, but I feel like I should just lean into it. Girl, I was an English major too. <laughs> I like it. Roll with it. <laughs> so again, Greek tragedy, we're talking about some of the greats, Aristotle, Sophocles, all of the old classics. Well, Greek tragedy has a specific structure. There's a main character, and then there's typically a chorus, and the chorus kind of narrates things as they go and is in between scenes, takes audiences in and out of the action, but ultimately the chorus isn't really part of the action. You've got main themes of hubris, pride, control, political rhetoric, conflict, fate. Are any of these ringing any bells for any of 
absolutely. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what you're thinking as you're hearing me English nerd out over the structure of a Greek tragedy. I mean, you can really trace some lines here in terms of the idea of, I would almost call it data used poorly, data used to hurt, not to help. And when you see this idea, particularly of hubris, control, conflict, fate, all of this, when data is used to create division and harm, that's when we're looking at data as the Greek tragedy. And I think the fate one is really interesting, too, because you get a lot of this in Greek tragedies where this horrible, disgusting, terrible thing is fated to happen to someone. And even though the chorus isn't really part of the action, because of the overwhelming specter of fate hanging over everybody's head, the main characters don't even really have any control over it. So... I think of this idea of data and particularly data that doesn't paint all positive. So, you know, everything roses and sunshine about a system and how people react to it almost playing into that idea of control and fate that then leads to conflict where things start to spin out and people start to interpret things regardless to what the data actually was just because of how it's used. Or picking the data that helps realign with the narrative. So you have the fate, you have the thing that is predetermined, predestined that you want to happen. So I'm going to pick the data that I need to support the thing that I want to happen anyway. And that ultimately inhibits the feeling of control for people within a system because they're not in control of anything. We're just cherry picking what we want in order to lead to the destination that's already predetermined. And if you're in a system with a lot of educated people, and let's face it, when you're in a system, especially with educators, we are attuned to noticing that's happening. Yeah. (laughs) Where is the genuineness to that cherry picking if it was already a ruse in the first place? Yeah. I think another connection that is sort of part of the Greek tragedy, and I've heard it for the first time over the last couple of weeks referenced, And I thought that it was just, it opened my eyes. So the theory was the big bad data wolf, like a logic bully that someone comes in with all this data, whether that's student scores or survey, whatever it is, and is pounding that data and hammering that one data point home so others don't have the ability to defend themselves. So I I really appreciated that concept of a logic bully, someone who's there like, this is my number, this is my number, this is my number, and this is all I'm going for, because that it really does take away that feeling of control that I have any sort of say in this whatsoever. I really think that's where the qualitative data comes in. This is such a hard thing for people to understand, but education isn't like every other industry. It is very human human profession. So when people are looking at data, there are so many factors and variables that go into affecting a particular data outcome. And I think that one of the big mistakes that can be made when the logic bully is doing their thing is treating the data almost as if it can only have one or even a couple of simple causes, oversimplifying all of the very complex things that go into a human being's learning. There's so much that goes into that. And tying into that human experience, another, and this is the last dive for right here into the Greek tragedy, but Aristotle said that the power in tragedy lies in the concept of catharsis. 
that within a human or somebody listening to a tragic story, there are feelings that come up about terror and pity. And as a result of those emotions, we are personally able to, as the audience, release them and move on to a period of rebirth. Do you guys ever feel like we get to the cathartic part in a narrative that's using or in a, in a system that's using data for the Greek tragedy? Well, no, not in the Greek tragedy one. <laughs> Definitely not. But I'm glad that means that we have some other story genres that we can get into that there is hope. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So the next story genre is the hero's journey. So these are our, our Odyssey, our Lord of the Rings, the story where we're using data in a sense to go on a particular journey. And we've got different stops kind of along the way. And the first one is that in a typical hero's journey story, there's a call to action where a hero experiences something and identifies that there is this opportunity. So can either of you make a connection between data and a call to action? I'm so out of my element, you guys. I'm not going <laughs> to I'm like just sitting here like I will. I, I got nothing. I didn't teach this stuff. <laughs> So go right ahead. I'll just put in my quips when I can. <laughs> well, yeah, I, th I think in general, when you're looking at a call to action, you are looking at a need for something. There is a need to get rid of this ring. There is a need to identify that this person is a magician, whatever. You have to <laughs> tell the hero of a hero's journey that there is something that needs to be done. And I think that when we look at data as being the impetus for a call to action, I think that really, again, in a healthy system can be a very healthy thing, not a person you're in trouble or you're going to be punished or you're going to lose your job or we're never doing this program again but more what can we do to improve or why do you think these numbers are the way they are that's when you start to see a call to action is when people are asking questions and the questions are open-ended not just taking numbers and making fast decisions and that makes me think of when you're in the classroom with students and the very first place that you can start to feel at home with data and where it not be so intimidating is when you're using that to help your own personal decision making in your lesson planning and when I look at what my students are doing and taking in their data to inform what I do next that's the baby steps of how to do that. And then also how that would look once you kind of get in that groove, bringing that even to your PLCs and talking through that. I think that that's really where there's lower stakes and it's maybe not so systemic or global or, you know, when you see it on a larger scale. At least for me, that's kind of where I can tie in how I've been able to relate to the power of data without it being so intimidating. Well, and I think Typically, when you have an initial hero, they're, they're unrefined. They're the diamond in the rough, if you will, right? And that's the case with data. It's just information. And in its unrefined, pure, raw state, it has to be analyzed. It has to be synthesized. And some meaning has to be derived from it in order for it to go on and do the next thing. And that's just like in a hero's journey, you've got trials that the hero must endure and learn from before its true worth is really seen and really known. And that's, I think, where my initial 
love for data started because I saw through my struggle and strife with it, the power that it had to make me better. So instead of data being the protagonist, I got to be it. It was my tool, my special hero's weapon that I got to take on my journey. And I don't mean weapon in a negative way. I mean the thing that I would wield in order to make something better for somebody else. I think another thing I would maybe mention about Hero's Journeys, I like Hero's Journeys where there's a team, where Avengers assemble, get the team in place. It's not just the hero out there being awesome, doing their thing all alone. When you look at those unrefined data and numbers and the data that a district can pull and see it as an opportunity for creating connection and collaboration between people, assemble a team, make sure that there's people from all different walks of life, all different places that can kind of come together and bring their best to the table. That's the type of conversation that could shift data into that hero's journey and away from that Greek tragedy where nobody feels like they have any stake or control because people are invited to the table and asked to weigh in on the data. And how then in reality does a leader, let's say it's a, a building leader or a team leader in this case, what do they say or what does the story look like then to make it more manageable or to help people that are getting that visceral reaction from the dirty word data and turn it into this powerful opportunity and manageable opportunity, even though it's powerful, it's not it's not so intimidating. One thing that I've always appreciated from my leaders was when they give me the data and approach it like, help me understand this. What are we seeing from this? What are the problems that we can identify and have the data be the jumping off point for that call to adventure? Not having those numbers in front and immediately saying, this is the problem, but not having those numbers to back it up or whatever the qualitative or quantitative, whatever it is, not seeing the raw puts me in that more chorus mindset. I am solely there listening to you share whatever narrative that you're sharing instead of allowing me to be part of the narrative. So that's what I'm hearing. It's less about here's the data we've already interpreted it. Here's the message. And now I'm starting to get it. Okay, so that raw data is really where you make people the participants that you were talking about, Casey, or how you can feel like you are the protagonist instead of the data being the protagonist. Ah. Slight addition to that, sheath your weapon. If data has been used as a weapon, yes. that there needs to be, first of all, leaders need to read the room. So when we've talked about that visceral reaction that teachers have when they think data is a dirty word. Watch people when you say data. Watch people when you talk about data. What are they reacting like? Do they roll their eyes? Are they looking away? Are they engaged? Are they disengaged? You can see and read the room and do it fairly quickly and kind of start to see if this is the system or the people, particular group that you're talking to is one that has seen data used in the past as a way of harming teachers or harming students. And again, I don't think anyone ever seeks out to do harm in education. I'm just going to say that point blank. No one ever seeks to harm in education, but... Everybody knows someone who has lost their job because data wasn't cutting it, whether it's in education or something else. And I think a lot of that hurt and distrust comes from data being weaponized. I've said it in the Dirty Words episode too. If you can say, look, everybody here is a respected, valued member of this team. We need to look at the data. 
we need to start generating some solutions and we're going to do it together. We're not getting rid of anybody here. This is our core team and we need you. Now let's look at what we have, then show them the raw. So even just preface it with a statement of trust and a placement of value on the people around you to recognize that maybe it has been weaponized before, but I'm not going to do it. So let's talk about data. Having that genuine, authentic, vulnerable conversation can be really powerful. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about our last story. And that is the love story. Oh, the love story. I mean, (laughs) and what again, what I love about romance in general, if you're even modern compared to classical romance, the initial conflict normally starts of disgust or insecurity on a part of the protagonist. I feel like this part right here, the insecurity, taps into how I initially felt about data. Really? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> when was that in your life? I never got to witness that. You actually had disgust for data? Do tell. I, I, I will say my disgust came from the calculation. When I initially look at a set of numbers or a, a series of data tables, it does take me a long time to process it. And I, I do feel incredibly insecure when I am analyzing data on my own. So Emily, I love that you brought up the concept of using it with a team because that's given me a little bit more security with it. But I always felt so insecure when it came to looking at my data, looking at my students' data, and what was that projecting about me as a teacher. And it wasn't until I started teaching juniors that I really saw the motivating power of data for both me and my students. So in my previous role as an English teacher, every year we would do something called the Great ACT Race, where over the course of the second semester, we would, in our junior level English classes, do a series of ACT practice tests for the kids. And we would track their first score, their second midpoint score, and their final score. And just seeing the targeted improvements we were able to make based on that data and seeing how it motivated the kids, it was just amazing how engaged they were in the process and how exciting it was. And I can't tell you how many kiddos would come to me, and I call them kiddos, but (laughs) they're juniors in high school. They're kiddos. Oh my God, I got a 34 and I started with a 22. (laughs) It was just so intensely wonderful to see their energy and excitement over that improvement, over that progress. And so that's where my insecurity kind of turned into a love affair because I did get to see that power in my students. And how about you, Emily? What about your disgust? And um, ha- would you ever say that you're yet in a love affair with Data? Uh, yeah, Data and I are tight now, but it took a <laughs> long riding road to get there. In my very first teaching position, I had seen some misuse of Data, test scores, test scores, test scores. And sometimes it, they were utilized in ways where people were disciplined or teams were pressured. And again, I didn't see 
data used as altruistically as one would hope. So as a result, when I would just look at data or be told we were going to talk about data, I was like, oh God, who's getting fired? I didn't really understand the beauty and the point of data. And Casey, I actually remember one year very early on in your time with us, you set a very earnest data-oriented goal, and I viscerally reacted, I think, in that meeting. I I stepped back from the table like, oh, no. (laughs) I'm pretty sure uh, I remember that moment. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But but that was uh, before the love affair began. What I would say about the love affair is we, in the district where we currently work, have experienced quite a bit of administrative turnover. And when new administrators came in, And at one point, I think it dawned on Jenny and me both that we needed to find a more concise, administrator-friendly way of telling the story of coaching in our building. Because people can hear coaching and hear all kinds of different things, just like we discussed in my so-called coaching life episode. Like there are a lot of conflicting definitions and confusion about what coaching is and what coaching can be. But above all, what we wanted to show is that coaching is happening and coaching is working in our building. And when we started to collect and analyze data with that goal in mind, it was like explosions, fireworks, you know, like as soon as we actually like you felt butterflies, didn't you? I did. I did. <laughs> it's like that scene where like you haven't seen somebody in years and then like you run into them at the class reunion and you're like, wow you know like (laughs) it was one of those moments like I get it now so yeah there were full-on butterflies once I realized that data could not be a weapon but kind of what you said an object of defense and protection for you I realized that that was a way of influencing how our story could be told kind of like how Jenny said before in a language anybody could understand and that administrators and any stakeholder who cares about success could really relate to. We are looking for constant growth and improvement in the engagement of our teachers. This is what we're getting and this is how we're tracking it and this is what we're holding ourselves responsible for. Boom, coaching is a thing. (laughs) I remember vividly the moment where I saw Emily's eyes turn from like hatred to like hearts. (laughs) And I remember exactly precisely what meeting she's talking about where we walked out and literally she was a convert and I know I'm the younger one and so this sounds a little patronizing but like I was so proud of you Emily because (laughs) like you were coming around to it and I would even say we still use data to tell our story and the data doesn't always reflect everything we want it to but man does it really give us insight into where we are and where we want to be And especially when we look at our numbers and what's going on with how coaching looks in a pandemic, it helps us tell that story and it helps us understand our story better as well. So it's been a really interesting way to come to terms with and begin that twisted love story in a positive way. We have done this in the past too in our district where we actually seek out those qualitative narratives as well. We have interviewed and talked to staff like, hey, what's the value of having a coach in your building? Tell us a little bit about it if you are so inclined. And we have had people say wonderful things and connect to some of those more qualitative endorphin and dopamine creating moments for us where, yes, we have numbers to indicate that we are making progress, but we also have those human stories as well. I think you need them both. Yeah. I think if you want a really accurate picture of reality, and then it also speaks to 
the brains that are attuned and I don't know if convinced is the right word, but convinced by numbers. And then it really helps those that might not necessarily understand the numbers or don't care to know the numbers because you have those people out there too that really want the human side and the story side of the data. What is the story side of the data telling us? So wait, Jenny, you kind of talked a little bit about my story with data, but I'm just really curious here. You mentioned you were proud of me. So now I just got to ask you point blank. Have you ever had a convert moment? Were you ever like data hater like I am? <laughs> I was. <laughs> I know for a fact that you were the data hater. <laughs> I was. <laughs> for sure. I don't think I understood data. I didn't have a point where I can think back where I just had that reaction where I hated it or I didn't like it. It was I just didn't understand it. And I feel like I've learned a lot in this role. One, because it's Casey and she loves data. And I just remember looking at her using spreadsheets and formulas. And I was like, dang, I gotta learn how to do that. And so over the last five years, I've been trying my best to even remotely do what Casey can do with numbers and data and that sort of thing. But I do know that when I started to use it more from a formative assessment lens and what it could do to help me lesson plan is when I really saw the power of it. If that's the baby step that you take is really to help you with your lesson planning or help you with making informed decisions using real information versus just anecdotal, that's a great place to start. And it's pretty low stakes because you can take your students somewhere. You can help them learn and you know that you have proof backing up why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. There is definitely something for data being the thing that happens in the middle of the story in that rising mm -hmm. action, not just mm -hmm. at the end. Okay, we're done. Here's the data. It's nice to get data in the middle. Mm -hmm. assess things along the way. So let's do some takeaways. What are some key things that we want our listeners to walk away with? Well, the first one we have is what type of story do you want to tell with your data? So we mentioned those themes of efficiency and adequacy and effectiveness. And those are the common ones that we see. But connecting them to stories is truly where we can help people understand the narrative that we're trying to communicate with them. And I would say the second one is what response do you want to elicit from your audience? So think about the group, the stakeholder, the analyzers of data or users of data, the people that the data is being communicated to. You have to be considering what type of all of the brain chemistry that Casey mentioned earlier. What are you trying to get from these people? What do you want them to feel? Do you want to build trust? Do you want to motivate them? Do you want to inspire them? Do you want to help them become more creative and start instigating solutions? As a person who communicates data to others, it's always good to know what response or emotions you're hoping to elicit with it. I think always keeping in the back of your pocket, do you want your stakeholders, all of them, your students, your parents, your teachers, your school board, do you want them to experience a tragedy, a hero's journey, or a love story? And I think that's really going to tie into that response of what you want them to feel. But at the end of the day, one of the most powerful quotes I've ever heard about data comes from Joe Sanfilippo, the superintendent of Fall Creek, Wisconsin schools, go crickets. Crickets. <laughs> is, data does not drive of movement. It is at the end, the story that connects to it is what drives the movement forward. So stories have power. They sure do. They do. All right, you ready for game? Game time. Game. Okay. So first question, what is your favorite 
love story? I'm going to freak everyone out and answer this first. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I had to think about this a lot. I'm glad we actually brainstormed in advance on this one, but I'm a Pride and Prejudice person. (laughs) I'm like, get that smart, (laughs) snarky girl with that tall, dark, handsome dude and watch fireworks happen. Like, just the way... It utilized banter. I'm a big banter person. I'm sure you can't tell from our podcast at all. But <laughs> I like I like the interchange of dialogue and the way it's used in that story and the way people talk to each other and the way it changes as the dynamic shifts. And who knows, maybe that that salty relationship turning into something really powerful is plays into my data story too. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I've always been a Pride and Prejudice Jane Austen movie fan. The books, no. No bueno? No bueno, no bueno. In my life as an English major, I ended up having to read it four times, just Oof. getting through the English program that I was in. But by the fourth time, I feel like I really knew what I was doing there, so I could get to the nuance that made it enjoyable to me. But the movies are the best. So mine is probably not as deep, but I love Princess Bride. Oh, As you wish. Wesley, I mean, how could you not? And I don't know, I just love the humor that is a part of it. And the true love sticks with you even when someone's gone and you don't know if they're coming back and he comes back. And not only that, but that's another one that really uses dialogue well. It's so cute in that movie. Of similar lines, whenever it is on, I will watch Bridget Jones's diary because Mm. of the quippy nature the Jane Austen-esque banter. It's the exact same story. It's based off of it, whatever. That was one of my number one favorite love stories. And Colin Firth is not Colin. Yeah, Colin Firth is just yeah, darling. I think we're having a Colin Firth connection here. He's yes. my favorite Mr. Darcy, too. <laughs> he's Darcy in that one. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and then one of my personal, just nerdy favorite book love stories is actually Jane Eyre. Because she is an independent female protagonist, and she's a little bit womp-womp, and she wants this guy, but he's a jerk and marries some, has another wife. Whatever. But I love the independent nature of her and her inability to accept nothing less than what she feels like she deserves. So I love that. A little bit of self-love in there. A little bit of self-love. <laughs> All right, next question. Who is your most memorable favorite villain from a story i'll go because i've been so out of my element this episode talking to you literature nerds this whole time (laughs) i sorry i can't keep up (laughs) sorry jenny english major party (laughs) (laughs) yeah the one that comes to mind for me is maleficent and what Mm -hmm. i love about it is my entire childhood when you think of watching sleeping beauty how bad you think she is and she really is but i love the movie maleficent and you really get to see that other side of her because she is a villain and she does have her dark moody storminess but yet she's got a soft inner gooey side gooey that, center <laughs> a gooey center and you learned that she is well i guess she's not human she what is she a nymph i don't know but she still has that human element of love as a part of who she is at her core and so i just kind of liked that duality of being the villain but that you can still have a good side yeah mine is of a similar not the same character but the same reason i love loki in the marvel cinematic universe 
for that same reason of you understand the backstory. You understand why he's so angry. And he has that wonderful multifaceted side where you've got humor, you've got the dark and stormy, you've got that interpersonal push and pull with Thor as his brother. But it's just, there's a lot of facets there. That for me is what makes a memorable villain. All right, and I'm looking I've, up who is Loki. <laughs> Here was Loki. He's hot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Come on. Amazing. For sure. I've been totally stalling here, though, talking about Tom Hiddleston, because you guys are <laughs> going to think I've gone off the rails. And it has nothing to do with any of the other villains that you've mentioned. So when I think of the most memorable villain, I actually think back to watching the movie Cool Hand Luke. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but quick description. It's a protagonist who is a very charismatic, man who's been sent to prison and the other prisoners in the prison system find him incredibly inspiring he gets them to work harder faster even like use their recreational time for more positive bonding type interactions and it's just like he actually like is starting to make a positive effect on that system but they think it's making the the people in prison too bold and in that system there is a over warden i guess who oversees the entire prison and in the movie i think he maybe speaks two words the entire time just wears mirrored sunglasses and you never get a peek into his head you never get a peek into his mind and those mirrored sunglasses are always just this barrier between him and every other relatable character in the movie and to me that always just left such a visual impact of just watching every reflection in that guy's glasses in that movie yeah, i have no idea who the actor is but <laughs> but it was such a stark visual about being bad i guess by refusing to connect or let anybody else into your inner world and doing some great harm as a result it really stuck with me dang girl that's deep that is deep that is deep <laughs> and then finally would you rather and i'm gonna this try is really to get deep. through this. this this next one yeah. is really i'm gonna oh, try yeah. to get through this without laughing because i have my sense of humor is between like dad jokes <laughs> I find, and puns, I find hilarious. So I'm going to try to get through this. So would you rather have a featured role in Snakes on a Plane, A Hiss Goodnight, or Sharknado 9, Any Finn Goes? <laughs> I'm going to let you guys answer. I've never Dude. seen these movies. I'm so out of, again, out of my I moment. haven't seen them either. I just know... These franchises are notoriously bad, <laughs> bad, bad stories. One involves a giant tornado full of sharks <laughs> <laughs> or snakes on a plane. <laughs> I'm going to answer, but with a caveat. I'm going to choose snakes on a plane, but mostly because I would really want to work with Samuel L. Jackson. If he's not in it, I'm not showing up. But if he is... <laughs> Sign me up. Second of all, I'm just hoping in the back of my mind that many of the snakes are added in digitally post-production because I'm actually really creeped out by them. But I would put that on the table for a chance to meet Samuel L. Jackson and just hear what he has to say for real, other than F-words. Yeah, your answer was my answer. 
for that same reason. If I could just be in the same room as Sam Jackson, let me. His children's story, Go the F to Sleep, <laughs> cracks me up. And I just want to say thank you. I do know you. that one. <laughs> I just want to say thank you for that. That would be enough. But just as you said, Em, the snakes would have to be digital because, yeah, then I might have to go to Sharknadoville. <laughs> yeah. I'll jump on the bandwagon since I have no idea what we're talking about right now. I'll go with the snakes on a plane. We're going to have to give Jenny some homework to watch some really terrible sea movies. Get it, girl. All right. So that was a fun way to end things up. But now for a taste of what's to come in our upcoming episodes. Speaking of fun with games, episode 10 is entitled Love in the Time of Corona. And this is going to be a game focused episode where we talk about some of the good practices in pandemic education or even just the pandemic itself and some of the things that might be touched upon from time to time and others that need to be completely obliterated and we are lucky enough to feature our good friend and awesome awesome educator kim darshay in that episode who is a ton of fun to play games with so we're really looking forward to that and in episode 11 we're going to be looking at the self-care circus so looking at the big show that has been made of self-care this year and talking about the ins and outs of it and how to make it authentic as well as what about it maybe seems like it is maybe more of a show than something that is being internalized by everybody. So there's a lot coming up that we're excited to share with you. Hope you can join us. And that's a wrap on today's episode. It is our sincerest hope to advocate for adult learners, and we aim to contribute to this community with genuine conversations about education, leadership, and topics that matter to you. If you'd like to connect, you can find us on our website, thegroundedlearnersguild.com, on Twitter, at Grounded L Guild, at C Veacher, at Tech Coach M, and at Jenny Labrie using the hashtag GLG Podchat. We believe in the power of feedback. It helps us to keep growing and allows us to bring new quality and customized content. Subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks again for joining us, Casey, Emily, and me, Jenny, in today's episode of the Grounded Learners Guild. See you at the next Guild meeting. And in the meantime, do your best to stay grounded. <laughs>